Just a note before we get started, this episode contains some descriptions of violence and strong language. And so to loop back to Mark Price, how did you first learn about him and get involved in his case? Well, you know, I was very active in helping get him convicted. This is Sheila Berry. Last name is Berry, like the fruit. Back in the 80s and 90s, Barry was the director of victim assistance in Outagamie and later Winnebago counties. I originated the use of victim impact statements in Wisconsin. I am old. Survivors and loved ones give victim impact statements at sentencing to describe the toll of a crime. In 1991, Barry worked on a case against a man named Mark Price. He was sentenced to life in prison for murder. I thought... He really did it. But some years later, Price told Barry his side of the story. And she started to have doubts. He's one of the most painfully honest people I've ever encountered. Kind of crude around the edges. But he doesn't make stuff up. And when he tells a story, he tells it the same way every time because he tells the truth. By this time, Barry had lost her job after accusing Joe Paulus of misconduct. He is the former Winnebago County District Attorney that we met in the last episode. Nobody believed me. For years, everybody thought he was wonderful. Barry left Wisconsin. She became a true crime author, and she started a nonprofit called Truth and Justice. Concerned with the wrongful conviction of innocent people and the factors that contribute to it. And one day, Sheila Barry received a letter from Mark Price. Going on page after page about how his rights had been violated, then wrote back and I said, I don't want to hear about your rights being violated. I just want to know what really happened. Price said Joe Paulus had falsely prosecuted him for murder. And I had enough experiences by then with Joe Paulus to recognize what he had pulled off. Oh my God, what have I done? From Wisconsin Watch and Wisconsin Public Radio, I'm Phoebe Petrovic. And this is Open and Shut. It seemed like a pretty much open-shut case. I mean, this was open and shut. Nobody would have had the lie. It was an open and shut case. Can I just have you introduce yourself? Because I haven't had to do that. Sure. My name is Mike Balskis. You might remember that name from the last episode. Balskis is a former prosecutor. These days, he's mostly retired but does a bit of defense work. And his most important job is playing Santa for his grandchildren. When he grows his beard out, he's the spitting image. But Balskis was a prosecutor for a long time. Uh, 38 years, 38 plus. In 2003, Balskis joined the Winnebago County DA's office. Just months earlier, Joe Paulus had lost his reelection bid. By then, the FBI was investigating Paulus for taking bribes. And Balskis started looking into other cases that Paulus had prosecuted. If a guy's taking bribes, you've got to wonder about what's he going to do to get convictions. So Balskis started talking to Fox Valley defense attorneys. And asking them, okay, if there's any cases that you know of um, that are strange, let us know. And we started compiling a list. And eventually, he heard about a big one. Well, uh, is this, which case are we going with, the drug case or the murder case? 
That's Mark Price. When Balska started looking into Price's convictions, he found problems in one of them, the drug case. But to really understand what happened, we first have to tell you about the murder. It was one of Wisconsin's first no-body homicide convictions. One of those cases Balska says Joe Paulus loved because they made grabby headlines. When I first heard the term no-body homicide, I figured police couldn't find the body. But that's not actually what happened. The murder occurred in December of 1989. Individuals shot a person uh, because of a drug debt, put them under the ice. Later, under one of the bridges, uh, this is a couple months later, a body shows up. But no one flagged it as a homicide. They think it's somebody who had jumped into the Fox River. A local funeral home received the body. And this is where things really went wrong. I talked to the coroner, and he told me he meant to request an autopsy. But due to the, quote, scrambles throughout the days, the body was cremated before that could happen. The coroner told me this was a horrible mistake, and it cost him his job. Well, in the bars, there was talk about, hey, here's this guy, you know, he got killed because of a drug debt. So now you've got a murder case without a body. The man who was murdered was Michael Fitzgibbon. There were three individuals involved in the, the homicide. There was Crawford, there was Price, and there was Pease. Todd Crawford, Mark Price, and Richard Pease. Price admits he was involved. The night of Fitzgibbon's murder, Price said he was at a friend's apartment when they got into a scuffle. And then I had pulled the gun out that I had on me, and I shot into the wall about two or two and a half feet off to the left of him. Wasn't at his head, wasn't above his head, wasn't even near him. Price claims they went back to hanging out and getting high. Later that night, the four men, Crawford, Price, Pease, and Fitzgibbon, left the apartment. They ended up at Lake Butamore and drove out on the ice. And I thought, because it's like 1 o'clock in the morning, that we're going to, um, you know, go out there to get high or whatever. Price says the other men got out of the car, and he stayed behind to drink his beer. When he got out to join them... When I just seen the, heard the shots, Richie shot twice, and then he cut a hole in the ice, and I helped him put the body in it. Crawford told police that Price and Pease forced him to participate. He cooperated with District Attorney Joe Paulus's investigation. Price did not. And Paulus, we're in this little room, and he's sitting across from me, and my attorney sitting next to me. And I'm explaining stuff to him. I said, you know, I'm willing to plead out. I did help hide the body and stuff like that. I'm willing to plead out to this stuff. And, you know, but I didn't, I didn't do this. And he goes, oh, I know you didn't do it. But if you don't want to play ball with us, I'm going to put you away right along with Richie. Richie is Richard Pease. He's the guy who Price says first pulled the trigger. Pease was convicted and sentenced to prison for life. In Price's trial, the jury heard a very different story than the one Price told me. Basically, I tortured the guy. I beat him up. I punched him in the face over 200 times. I tied him in a chair. I shot a gun right above his head. I, I threatened, you know, you name it. I did all kinds of stuff. Price was sentenced to life in prison. Crawford was never prosecuted for the murder. 
And that brings us to the case where Mike Balskis found problems, the drug case. Well, what happened is that Mark Price, he would make veiled threats at Joe Paulus. Price would send Paulus mail. Sends him Asshole of the Year Award to Joe Paulus from prison. Uh, Joe basically returns by saying things like, oh, I hope you're enjoying yourself, things of that nature. But some of it was darker. Mark Price would send letters saying, I'm going to kill you when I get out. I'm going to have sex with you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do, you know, just rantings and ravings. Looking back, Balskis believes it all began with an election. You have this election coming up. It's August of 1994. Joe Paulus is running for re-election as DA of Winnebago County. He's got to get some publicity. Vince Biskupic is Paulus's deputy. And he's running for DA in neighboring Outagamie County. They're going to make sure that this looks really good for Joe. And Joe's on the, the news saying, well, you know, that's just part of the job. You know, I get threatened all the time and blah, 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 and everything else. And so they file a criminal complaint with the court, alleging that Mark Price was plotting to hire a hitman to kill Joe Paulus. As Paulus's deputy, Biskupic handled the case. The victim is his boss. Is there a conflict of interest? Yes. Is there an appearance of impropriety? Oh, yeah. Biskupic alleged that Price was selling marijuana in prison to pay for a hitman to murder Paulus. And as evidence of the crime, he relied on a witness, a jailhouse informant. We're going to get back to that witness in a bit. But first, let's be super clear about something. Price was selling pot. You know, I understand that it, it sounds bad. You know, I'm in prison, I'm selling drugs, and they twist it. And, oh, now I'm selling drugs to raise money to kill him. Price knows it sounds really bad. I hate the guy, you know, for what he did to me. And I've told everybody I'd like to kill him. There's a difference between making a statement and having an actual plan. Biskupic levied three felony charges against Price. Remember in episode one, when we talked about how the vast majority of cases are resolved by pleas? That's what happened here, too. Price was worried that he couldn't prove the jailhouse informant was lying. And he was worried about getting a longer sentence if he went to trial. So his attorney worked out a deal. Biskupic dropped one of the charges and reduced another in exchange for a no-contest plea. These charges added 14 years to Price's sentence. That might seem negligible to you. He was technically serving a life term. But for Price, it pushed back the date at which he'd be eligible for parole. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hey, Open and Shut listeners. Investigative journalism like this costs time and money. Getting these stories right takes research over weeks, months, and in this case, years. That's where you come in. Your support of in-depth and independent journalism makes everything we do possible. Support fact-checked journalism that has a direct impact on people's lives by making a donation to Wisconsin Watch and Wisconsin Public Radio. Learn more and donate to Wisconsin Watch and WPR at wisconsinwatch.org and wpr.org. Thank you. Do 
To understand the problems in Mark Price's drug case, we've got to take a little detour to talk about criminal procedure. You hear the word procedure and most people just want to run away, and I get that. That's University of Wisconsin assistant law professor Ian Maine. Maine's research has largely focused on discovery. Discovery is one of the most important aspects of criminal procedure. It governs the exchange of information between the prosecution and the defense. If you're facing criminal charges, you don't actually have the power to demand all the information about your case. There are rules about what a prosecutor has to turn over and what a prosecutor can hold back. But it wasn't always this way. Before the 1940s, there weren't a lot of guidelines for the types of information attorneys needed to exchange. So they'd often have to contend with surprise witnesses or documents. For a long time, in both the criminal and civil system, we have been going to trial blind. But on the eve of World War II, there was a push to modernize the system. And the U.S. Supreme Court decided to tackle civil rules first. So they appointed a committee. And they really thought deeply about it. Like, what is a fair process? The reformers created a new federal standard, and it was a big change. Let's exchange all this information, interrogate information, excavate all relevant facts and documents, and talk to everyone who has information about this dispute before trial. Maine says that a lot of policymakers and scholars liked the new civil rules. And when the committee, which didn't include a single criminal defense attorney, convened to tackle criminal procedure, reformers just suggested they use the rules already written for civil court. And that's what they did in their first draft. So for a moment in time, a different world was proposed. Both parties, including the defendant, would have the power to demand information relevant to that person's case before trial. But that first draft didn't last long, and Maine thinks he knows why. It has escaped notice that this reform occurred during Jim Crow. Maine believes the roots of American prosecutors' power to control discovery trace back to white supremacy. There are comments that were published by the committee, from federal judges, from bar associations, talking about how almost all defendants were black, that it would be absolutely inappropriate to give black defendants a voice. Maine says defendants in civil court, which was a mostly white world, got to demand information from their accusers. Defendants in criminal cases who were disproportionately Black, did not. The new federal criminal rules put one person in charge of the flow of information, the prosecutor. If you only have the person who has a vested interest in winning and convicting the case, and you leave the discretion to that individual to credit the, the evidence, you're going to get a very, very poor assessment of what this case is about. But in 1963, the rules changed. It started with a guy named John Brady. Brady and a co-defendant had been convicted of first-degree murder. Both men were sentenced to death. After his trial, Brady discovered that his co-defendant had confessed to being the sole murderer. The prosecutors knew that and had withheld it. 
the Supreme Court decided this concealment violated Brady's right to due process. Here's American University law professor Angela Jordan-Davis. So in Brady versus Maryland, the United States Supreme Court held that prosecutors have a constitutional duty to turn over all exculpatory information to the defense. Exculpatory. That is... Any information that would tend to show that the defendant is not guilty. This Supreme Court case established what's known as the Brady Rule. It requires prosecutors to turn over exculpatory information to the defense. But it has some problems. Prosecutors only have to turn over exculpatory evidence that is also material, which means it would likely change the outcome of the trial. And also... The timing is the key. Uh, in a timely fashion is what the Supreme Court says. Well, what does that mean? The prosecutor thinks a timely fashion is like right before the jury's sworn. I, as a defense attorney, I think timely means as soon as you get it. Some states specify exactly when prosecutors have to turn over Brady evidence, but not Wisconsin. And remember, the vast majority of cases never make it to trial. And so you have a lot of people pleading guilty when potentially, and in fact we know, there's oftentimes exculpatory information that is discovered later after the person's convicted and serving time and oftentimes many, many years later. On the surface, Brady seems like a step forward for due process. But Brady requires the prosecutor to act ethically rather than granting the defendant power to access information. One law professor I talked to said it creates a right without a remedy. Of course, a defense attorney can try to investigate, but having the time and money to conduct an investigation, that's a luxury. And it's one that many public defenders don't have. This is the system under which mass incarceration has boomed, and black and brown people get disproportionately caught up in. But this system, which Maine says was shaped by white supremacy, remains in place today and harms every person who is a criminal defendant, even white men like Mark Price. So those problems Mike Balskis found in Mark Price's case, they had to do with discovery. There's this, if you want to call it manufacturing evidence, by omission. Balskis found tape recordings that had never been shared with the defense. This is Darren Beverly. He was serving time for armed robbery. And according to the criminal complaint, he contacted authorities and told them about Price's alleged plot. What happened was that this Beverly came and said, hey, I'll talk to Mark Price. I'll get him to admit that he's going to hire a hitman. So they wire Beverly up. Turns out you don't get the best sound quality when recording inside a prison metal shop. First of all, they talk about one of them getting a colonoscopy. Y'all got to check me for uh, colon cancer. Not colon cancer, but a colon enlargement. Did they do that? They spent most of the time talking about that, which was like, okay, this is pretty exciting stuff. That's the best thing to do, though, man, because that's the leading... But then he says, hey... I've got a friend who will do a hit for you. That's why, that's why I say, uh, get the motherfucker at least to take care of this one off the top, man, because if the motherfucker keep doing that... Mark Price's response is, now nah, that's okay. 
I know that there's another guy out there, and uh, I think that guy's going to do something when he gets out. And he's just about to get out, so I'm not going to do anything. Whoa. That was kept from the defense. They completely fail to confirm that, that this plot even exists. This is Byron Lickstein. He was an attorney with the Wisconsin Innocence Project, and they took on Price's defense. It's a case that was sort of almost made up from the beginning. And in case all that colonoscopy talk wasn't enough, Balskis found a second set of cassette tapes. Hello? Hey, is this uh, Terry? Yeah. Terry is Terry Mangum, a woman Mark Price had known for several years, who occasionally helped him move drugs. The sheriff's department had set up a sting and caught Mangum selling pot to an undercover officer. But she wasn't arrested. At least, not yet. They had this undercover police officer talk to Mangum um, repeatedly on these recordings. There's, there's something else that came up. I went back down to uh, talk to some friends. And he said that some of your friends are looking for a, uh, a very special kind of person. A very special kind of person. And I think I have somebody in mind. The the officer kept trying to entice Mangum into confirming that, yeah, there was this plot and and Price is trying to set up this hitman. Yeah, I mentioned that to him and he had no idea what I was talking about. Had no idea what you are talking about? Mm -mm. He thought that was pretty weird and all this and that. She repeatedly says that Price didn't know anything about it. A couple months after the recordings were made, Terry Mangum was arrested for selling marijuana. But Biskupic let her go after she gave a statement implicating Price. When I started looking into cases Vince Biskupic prosecuted, I noticed a pattern he seems to have followed in some of his high-profile convictions— And failing to disclose discovery to the defense is part of that pattern. And I'm not the first person to have noticed it. Years ago, when my boss D. Hall wrote a story about Mark Price's case for the Wisconsin State Journal, a prominent criminal defense attorney told her, quote, I'm familiar with Vince's proclivities for withholding evidence. That's fairly well known up there. Paulus and Biskupic had the reputations as win at all costs. The ends justify the means, prosecutors. End quote. In 2006, the Wisconsin Innocence Project filed a motion to withdraw Price's plea. And the special prosecutor assigned to the case sided with Price, suggesting that Biskupic had committed a Brady violation by not telling the defense about those tapes— Not only that, but Biskupic had offered Terry Mangum, the woman who helped Price move drugs, a plea bargain. As proposed, she would plead no contest to a marijuana delivery charge and continue to cooperate against Price. Biskupic shared that offer with Price. But what he didn't share was that he ultimately never charged Mangum at all. The special prosecutor said that giving Mangum so much consideration was exculpatory and could have undermined her credibility. And there's something else that Biskupic failed to disclose to Price's attorney. It's about Darren Beverly, the jailhouse informant who recorded all that colonoscopy talk in the prison metal shop. 
Testimony from jailhouse informants, sometimes called snitches, can be necessary, but it's notoriously unreliable. And it's obvious why that is. There's there's people who are involved in the criminal justice system who want to get less time in their own cases. And that's what Beverly wanted. From the very beginning, when he was in contact with investigators, he asked for a sentence reduction in his own case. Beverly's request was documented. Problem is that the prosecutor who, who, who prosecuted Mr. Price elicited testimony from Beverly under oath saying just the opposite. In a secret John Doe hearing, Beverly lied and said he didn't ask for or get promised any favors. But court documents show he had. And by the way, after Beverly testified, Biskupic helped Beverly get five years off his sentence. During a hearing, the special prosecutor argued Price should be allowed to withdraw his plea to avoid a, quote, manifest injustice. And the judge agreed. He vacated Price's conviction for making threats against Paulus. But the judge kept the drug charge, which carried nine years, on top of the 33 years Price was already serving before he'd be eligible for parole. Nine years was the maximum for the drug charge. And the original judge told Price he deserved this maximum sentence because he believed Price was selling the drugs to finance a murder. You know, people act like it's nothing. It's, it's almost a decade. You know, it's nine years. But even though the special prosecutor agreed that Vince Biskupic had withheld crucial evidence that pointed to Price's innocence, as far as I can tell, he was never disciplined. Not long ago, I got an unexpected call. Hello. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Oh, not bad. Actually, actually pretty good. For the past few years, Price has been asking the court to make his drug sentence run concurrent with his murder sentence. Finally, at a hearing in late January 2022, a judge went a step further and knocked it down to one year concurrent, which means he'll be eligible for parole even sooner. I was in court for the hearing. Price appeared by video because the Omicron variant was surging. A television on the wall showed him in prison. He had a white goatee and wireframe glasses. After she gave her ruling, the judge read some boilerplate about how if Price wasn't happy with it, he could appeal. And Price interrupted her to say, I'm fine with the decision. Price called me after the hearing while I was on the road. I'm, well, I'm very happy. It's just getting a judge like her, you know, somebody that knows what the heck actually took place and is, and is willing to do the right thing. Can't really beat that. But one person who was important to Mark Price's story wasn't there to see it. Over the last 25 years, Sheila Berry had been Price's strongest, most consistent advocate, and also his friend. She really grew to care about him and even started imagining the day he'd be released from prison. I was briefly home a couple of weeks ago. Back home in Wisconsin, after decades of living away. Yeah, it changed so much. And, it, and he's, he's one of the people I thought of. Jeez, he isn't going to be able to find his way around either. I mentioned it to him, how dramatically it had changed. How do you react to that? 
Oh, he'd be happy to just take a look at it anyway. <laughs> sure. That was one of the last times I talked to Sheila Berry. She died in August 2021 after a long illness. I broke the news to Price soon after she died. I was wondering, I haven't heard from her since last Wednesday. So I didn't know what had happened. And then I, I had just tried calling her this morning and uh, charges were refused. Well, that never happened. She's definitely going to be missed. Uh, she was one of my most staunch advocates and we became pretty good friends. And I couldn't really ask for anybody better. Next time, a case Vince Biskupic prosecuted in Outagamie County. It's the hardest story we've talked about so far. One that really made me think about fairness in the criminal legal system and who deserves it. I was swinging the bat again and kind of hit him in the side of the head. And I knew that there was never any intention to kill Alex. They went to beat him up over silliness. Does it matter if people are good or bad, whether or not the United States government trampled people's rights? Open and Shut is presented by Wisconsin Watch and Wisconsin Public Radio. It's reported by me, Phoebe Petrovic, and DJ Hall. We're produced by Nina Ernest and edited by Karen Given. Mixing by Brad Kohlberg. Music by Carl Christensen. Additional support from Andy Hall, Coburn Ducart, and Claire Amari. Special thanks to Wesley Leatham and our legal review team, Krista Westerberg and Aaron Dumas. Digital editing by Alyssa Alamand and David Highland. You can subscribe to Open and Shut wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please give us a good rating. It'll help more people find us. You can see more at wpr.org slash open and shut.